This week on Robot Thought Leaders, we're joined by Ryan Weaver, who's the director of automation, robot director, robot manager, robot product manager, just the robot guy. Marketing in there. Yeah, at Access He's He's everything. Yeah, does it all. Uh, We had an amazing conversation. Ryan's very well-spoken, articulated. Uh, We shouted out Ed Mullen uh, for his first time showing up at Access New England with a robot back in 2012. We talked about right-hand robotics. We talked about AI. Um, We talked about uh, Sam Bouchard probably a lot uh, with some lean robotics mentality in there. Sorry, Sam. Ryan asked us a bunch of really good questions too towards the end, which I thought was a nice change of pace. So check it out. Yeah, just an awesome conversation going back through the history of UR and, and Access New England and, and, and Ryan's coming of age within robotics and then where he has seen the market change in the last five years and, and where the um, cobot market is going as we speak right now and some new technology he thinks is going to change the game here in the next few years. So please yeah. uh, give us a listen. We, we hope that you enjoy it. Thanks. Thanks. Welcome to the Robot Thought Leaders Podcast with Zach Tompkinson and Chris Savoya, bringing you in-depth interviews with industry experts driving change in the robot world. All right, welcome to Robot Thought Leaders, Ryan. Happy to have you on uh, on the show today. Uh, we're just going to kind of go for it. We're just going to start recording right now and, Sounds good. and see what we get. Uh, it's going to be a pretty open conversation. We like to hear about your background first. So we'll kind of ask you all the way back to maybe first robotics or whatever you're doing before you got to WPI and then at WPI, of course, getting yeah. out. Um, how you got started at Axis. We want to hear about UR. For the first time too, uh, sure. when, when you guys Ooh, first, got first, going, first so. opinions, when the, when like you got the first one, I'd love to go all, I want to go all the way back. I want you to first day. I want you, you to want to write a book with me sometime, Zach. I think we, you know, I think there's a story to tell there. There's, there's definitely right. some, some good stories, but I'm, I only come in like halfway through. So I want to hear, I want to hear like the first day you got the, you are what, like, what was your thoughts? Um, Yeah, well, I guess, first of all, thanks for having me on here. I'm not a uh, regular podcaster, so you'll have to excuse any of my uh, faux pas. But, uh, you know, I think that if nothing else, we've seen this format. Uh, If if the pandemic has given us nothing else, it's given us podcasts aplenty. So I'm glad to see uh, what you guys have started. And I've been uh, able to enjoy a couple of the episodes. So cool. Good stuff. yeah. So your question again, Zach. Yeah. First day. So set the set, set the scene for first time you got a UR. Actually, you unboxed back, it. Backtrack said, one second this? here. First, I have something I want to say. Um, it's a it's Tech Tuesday, so we're all having beers on on Tech Tuesday, just like we did in college. Tech maybe Tuesday. Not, I don't together. That must have been after my time. Really? Uh, <laughs> that that sounds shocking. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> you must have just not partaken. Um, but yeah, just different days, WPI, um, tradition. So, um, yes, but my question was, 
the first time that you got the the cobot would have been like 2014 2015 i believe 2012 you had one and you had one at in 2012 had one in 2012 yeah so and it wasn't a cobot we didn't even know what the heck to call it it was it was a robot that apparently wouldn't hurt you it was <laughs> safe to work around people uh this was this was a Gen Two robot at that point, I think. CB two, yeah, it was a CB two okay. robot at that point back in 2012, 2014, 15, I think was when the CB threes came around, yeah. if I remember right. So, yeah, so you know, I remember sitting down to see a demo of of the UR five on a tabletop, and you know, I I thought I was this this thing this toy what was this gonna be this was a joke uh in terms of you know a, a product why would we need a robot that's gentle and easy to yeah. to uh to program it's you know why wouldn't if you're gonna automate something why not use these Better powerful strong industrial robots and so were you guys using uh other six axis robots at the time yuskawa or others yeah we had uh a couple of different brands for you know scara robots uh your traditional kind of six axis five axis uh, robots nothing enormous but uh but i had done my fair share of programming and deploying commissioning applications for some of your more traditional type robots and so i knew what i was doing with those in terms of the script programming and things like that so i said you know i know how to program these why would i need something that's easier and and who's gonna who's gonna work next to a robot? And so, mm. by the time we were done with that that demo, I was a believer. I was convinced cool. because all it took was having that teach pendant in your hand and saying, "Geez, uh, I could teach this thing to do an entire program in the amount of time I would have to boot up and do the initial settings for a traditional robot." Yeah. Uh, what? Who's in the room with you? Were you in the conference room at Access New England in Danvers? Yeah, that's where we were. Yeah. Who was doing the demo? Uh, Mr. Ed Mullen. Ed Mullen. Oh, Shout God. out, Ed Mullen. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, currently with uh, with Mir, but uh, yeah, he he yeah. was he was the man uh, at that time. He was the only uh, Universal Robots employee. In the How US. was his demo? Can we get some Can we get some positives and negatives on Ed Mullen's demo? Ten years yeah. uh, past. <laughs> I think it was, it was kind of a throw it on the table. You know, you, you hit the, the keys, boom, boom. It's, you know, robot moves, Moving. it works, you know, stand in front of it, whatever, whatever you want to do. That's I mean, not, like a speed thing. That's like my Ed Mullen impression. Yeah. The Long Island accent. Yeah. I, I'm not good at it, so I won't <laughs> try too hard, but uh, you know, he, he ultimately established a pretty, a pretty extensive channel in the U S. So he yeah. did. Uh, I mean, I would did, say that he, ultimately created the channel strategy for UR that ultimately got a, adopted globally. I, I mean, I'm sure there are others that were decision makers in that process, but I, I know he certainly was a game changer in the let's talk to distribution and work this through distribution um, based on his previous experience working in, in distribution. Um, yeah. I'm sure he would, we'd have to get, we have to get him on the podcast to get his That's story because I'm sure yeah. he has, He's got some um, better history behind it, but um, yeah, I certainly the the father of the distribution channel through UR. Yeah, yeah and so, even 
all the other collaborative robots that have adopted it now too. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, cobots in general kind of have a different go-to-market strategy than traditional industrial robots. I would robots, say that it so. wasn't always that. I mean, there are other robot companies previously that had, you know, adopted a channel strategy. I mean, obviously like Axis, you guys were repping other robot lines at that point too. So it wasn't necessarily that. I think really around the, the cobot mm-hmm. piece was where, where that fit. <clears throat> um, so yeah. Um, continue. I, I, I'm sorry for interrupting, Ryan. No, I mean, I think the big difference in terms of how you how you figure out where to use these robots it, compared to those those sort of traditional applications is the, the the people who are deploying those are completely different. You've got on one side a automation engineering leader or robotics programmer, what have you, uh, either at an integrator or at a large company who has the staff for that. And then the other, the other side, you have the manufacturing technician or yeah. maybe the manufacturing engineer who we were working with on these problems that they have. And so unlike with the traditional robots where you kind of knew once you sized out the application, what you were dealing with and you knew what kind of robot they were going to use. Well, with the UR, it was not only necessary because the, the, the folks who are going to be deploying these robots weren't typically used to doing that. And so they, they needed a, a better sense of how things worked, but you could take the robot all of a sudden and put it right on the factory floor and yep. have it do the job before anybody ever, uh, you, you know, had to, had to sign a PO to, to get the process going. You could just do yeah. the job right on the floor. And so not only from a technology standpoint, was that transformative, but from a solving the application standpoint, that was huge. The ability just to show up and, and make it work. Yep. That's, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think back to that time frame and, and kind of where the mindset was in the industry too, and see how much, I mean, obviously it took a long time too, because that you said that was 2012. So when, when did you sign on as a, officially as a distributor? I, I believe that was, was that yeah, early 20, 2013? Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, uh, Sam Bouchard, who I know you had on this podcast a yeah, few episodes back, uh, you know, he, he had showed up on our doorstep no more than six months prior to Ed. And so at the time we were looking at this, you know, really cool, flexible gripper, but without any clear sense of what are we going to use this for? How many traditional robot applications are going to use this flexible gripper? And he he mostly had the three finger gripper at the time. And then eventually came out with the two finger gripper that, that they're so famous for today for all those uh, (laughs) solid works, splash screens. And, and of course the, the uh, you know, the, the, the cobot industry in general, but so, you know, it, it was sort of a marriage made in heaven. And I remember when we went down to, it was actually Annapolis, Maryland, uh, both one of our engineers and myself traveled down there for the first training uh, where one of the UR guys who'd been on a epic world tour, um, Stefan, if, uh, if you Stephen. remember. Stefan Stubart, another yeah. shout out. He's yes. still around. Yeah, I think he got back from Brazil, maybe. A couple, you know, a few hours before starting with us, uh, this group of, you know, people who knew nothing about this robot in uh, in Maryland in some hotel. So Crazy. that's where things got kicked off. Yeah, Sam told a really good story about uh, the high tech distributor conference, just uh, basically being, being in the backyard. 
in Quebec city and he just happened to go and he just happened to go and find a lot of people that were interested in his stuff. And that kind of led to a lot of the success that they had inadvertently. So it's pretty cool. Flipping us around here. Cause you're the, you should be the focal point on the bottom. I don't know. I had it there before, but now you're back. So, okay. Everything's the same from my perspective, Good. but well, your perspective is the one that it matters. It won't be on so. the main screen. So when you see this flip happen, when you rewatch it, you'll, you'll see it happen. There you go. Time. So Ryan, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, this actually came up in my life recently. You know, some of my friends, some of my family here that we got a podcast, they're like wanting to listen to it. And, you know, Aunt Betty is like sitting around the table with you and she knows not a thing about robots. She thinks that I might as well be like, you know, making rockets or like something crazy you know so when you want to talk about like what you want to do or what you do for a living with robots what do you think is the most misunderstood thing that you have to deal with when you're talking to just like some average you know joe something (laughs) like that well i think there's there's two things and i'll i'll frame both of them i think one specific to what I do, what Axis does, um, what folks in our space, we're talking about this distribution channel. If, if you don't know what that is, if you're on Betty, uh, it's it, yeah. it's confusing. What, what are we even talking about here? And I think one, one thing that, you know, if you're in college right now and you're studying engineering or robotics or what have you, you know, there's there, the thing that's tough to always keep in mind is that kind of the commercial pathway for these products, everything that is designed and engineered has to somehow get out to the end user. And Amazon's not the pathway for everything out there. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's what we do ultimately, the way I describe it is that we, you know, we work with manufacturers like universal robots who make an excellent product, but haven't necessarily the means to figure out how to use it in the real environments uh, yeah. at the local level where uh, manufacturers are trying to apply these technologies. And so our job is to be the automation expert, not only in the product and the technology and how to apply it, but also in our customers' processes. So we bridge that gap between understanding what manufacturers in New England, across the nation, across the globe are doing yeah. and what the technology is capable of so that we can help guide them through that process and you know, ultimately sell them the technology or the solution that's going to do that job for them. So that's, that's why we exist. And it's a, it's a confusing thing to think that you don't just go to the robot store and buy a robot because yeah. you're going to have a real bad time. Yeah. Uh, but you know, that's you're, the solution or the boots on the ground. You know, you're the people who kind of put the pieces together in the way that they need to be. And so I that's, would say, what you, and have that's what you'd explain how. as distribution to Aunt Betty. What's the other half? So the other half uh, is, is what, what robots actually do, right? I think the thing that, that we, we don't, we not only deal with this with, with Aunt Betty, but with the manufacturers that we work with, which is, I think the media and, uh, movies and TV shows do a lot to build up our expectations about what technology and robotics and, uh, these kinds of things, even AI are capable of, like, they're just these magic things that you just plop it into place and it's going to do a job for you. Or you've got, you know, like the Jetsons, a, a, a robot uh, walking around your house, you know, helping you out with tasks. Talking. People are, yeah. people are trying to do that, but 
the the dots to connect to get there are tremendously far from what the kind of magic utopia that we we sometimes see from a media perspective so it's you know we we try to I try to generally explain, you know, what a robot is is good at doing, and it's good at doing what you tell it to do. If you tell it to, you know, just go from point A to point B, it's going to keep doing that better than a person could, but it's going to have no sense. And so then you got to bring sensing into it. You bring sensors or cameras or what have you into the picture. And so you start building up this solution. And so that's to me where the future of a lot of this is going to go is not only making that programming easier, like we talked about at the very beginning, which is, you know, how magical it was to get this teach pendant in my hands that I could, in a matter of a few minutes, teach a robot to do something really powerful, like move something from here to there. But, uh, but, but where things are going, I think, is adding some of that additional sensing in that adds intelligence to the robot uh, while we're making that programming easier so that the robot is more capable, more like a person, because that's the analog people have in their head is they, they see robots and they think things like, you know, Terminator or WALL-E or what have you, uh, depending on your age level. Uh, and, you know, it, the robots just don't naturally, the industrial robots don't have that kind of perception just baked right in to see and hear and think like people do obviously and so it's understanding limitations on what a what a robot can do versus what a person could be expected to do yeah totally i mean we were talking to sven last time from rd minds he's like a next level robot guy right he just has eat and breathed and, and slept and dreamt about robots you know for years and years and it was interesting. He was talking about AI. I think AI is one of those things that the closer you get to AI and the, the closer you get to understanding what AI is, the less you realize, or the more you realize it's really not a big thing. It's, or it's not as powerful as people make it out to be like, we're not necessarily a Terminator uh, status yet, but he was talking about how there's not nearly enough data on the robots to run like really good AI yet. And I always thought that was interesting. I thought there was a ton of data around robots, you know, and he's like, no, in order to be able to do truly more generalized, unstructured AI, you need vast amounts of data, vastly more than what is any available on any robot platform right now. And even with the sensors that we have, it may not be enough. You know, we need to find more data to be able to run it. And and then the other problem problem with that too is you've got so many different brands of robot or AI doing those calculations rather than doing it all together. So you're there is no like central area for everything to be dumped into which means that everyone's collecting their own data rather than sharing it meaning it's going to take even longer um and until there's more of a clear a clear winner there it's who knows how long it will really be yeah i think the great challenge with ai and i apologize for moving over to the side here for those who can see the video feed i'm trying to dodge the the sun as it sets out outside here um but uh you know i think the great challenge with ai is as we see it starting to make its way into control platforms for motion control for example to solve common tasks like a flying flying knife application or a wind unwind application even for just Mm. cases where you're dealing with two or three axes of motion not even a robot um the big challenge is that as anybody who's familiar with AI or neural networks, 
would know, you don't often know why or exactly how the AI has come up with the result that it has or the pathway to the solution that it has. And so you don't really know exactly how it's going to behave, even though it's ultimately going to achieve the end task. It's not necessarily, you can't look inside the brain and say, oh, I see exactly how this is working, Mm -hmm. especially when it gets extremely complex. It would take a person a really long time to understand exactly how that program was built. And it's not going to build it like a person would. So when it comes to manufacturing tasks, people want that stuff to be really well understood, well vetted, repeatable, easy to troubleshoot. Uh, Even if it gets to the end result quicker, it's got to be predictable. And and I think that that scares a lot of people in manufacturing, not to mention the working around people and and even you know, medical applications where, uh, you know, we need to make sure that the processes are, are well understood in terms of the programming, things mm-hmm. like that. So there's a lot of, so there's a lot of hurdles to cross on the AI front in manufacturing. It brings up, a, it begs a very interesting question. Is there a very different level of standard or expectation for human versus robot because humans make decisions all the time that are not necessarily understood so is it acceptable to say that like machinery forever will be judged on a completely different scorecard well i guess the difference is that the human can explain to you their thought process right sure and and maybe there are you know ai engines that can do that today but i'm not aware of them and i certainly don't think that they're being applied more broadly and Even if they get to that point, they might be able to give you some sort of, okay, well, check these four boxes or it hit these different thresholds, but it's not going to say it likely won't be able to tell you every single step of the way why it made the decision it did. Someone could look it up, I'm sure, that knows it, but for the everyday user, it's going to be very difficult to, to see that. There are a lot of practical cases where we are seeing AI being applied, particularly in machine vision. I think that's one clear area where, you know, what these neural networks are able to do, just like the, the CAPTCHAs that you see on the web where, Hmm. you know, the, for, for Aunt Betty, maybe who, who isn't aware when you click the three bridges, what you're probably helping uh, somebody do is, you know, you're giving them two that they already knew and one that they didn't know for sure was a bridge. And, and that's feeding some self-driving car, you know, AI algorithm somewhere that's being developed. So, uh, there's, there's a lot that's going on like that in the industrial automation space where Carol brought that up last, well, yeah, last yeah. literally the last, last guy we talked to awesome. said the same exact thing about captures. Well, clearly I haven't listened to uh, the most recent <laughs> episode of the podcast. Okay. It hasn't good. been released yet, so you're Okay, good. well, there's there's my uh, there's my, <laughs> my pass, I guess. Call me uh, call me a bit crazy, but I have taken to willfully trying to mess up the captures. Uh, and I don't do so deceitfully in that I like actively choose the wrong answer. I just now try and choose the answer so quickly that there's no way I could possibly process what's in the images. And does it work? I just click them as fast as I can. And half the time they'll let me through. So, hmm. oh yeah, most of the time they let you through. I'm like, you know, when you're, <laughs> I saw a thing earlier and it was like, are you stressing when it's like, here's a stoplight. It's like select the stoplights. And it's just like, just a little bit in like the, the top of it goes into the next block. It's like, do you select that one or not? And like the stress <laughs> that comes with it. 
yeah. I relish not in those me. moments. <laughs> well, it's not, I mean, it's not that different from right. What we're seeing our customers do is they've, they've got, you know, packages or product or whatever that a person is really good at looking at this product and saying, Oh, there's a little scratch over here. These subjective decisions, right. Of this product is too damaged to go on, or it's, you know, just falls under the threshold in terms of, you know, quality control, things like that. And so, you know, what we're seeing applications for AI is feeding a computer just you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of these images of what good and bad product are, yeah. it's going to say, <clears throat> we think that these are the good ones and the bad ones. And you can then correct it just like that captcha and start to build that knowledge base. And the more that it goes through the process, the more that it learns. And so I'm excited to see that gap start to get bridged in robotics as well in manipulation tasks in yeah. kind of live dynamic tasks, as opposed to just the quality control type applications, which are, I think there's a lot of exciting opportunity there too, but in the kind of what I would consider live action decision-making. Um, you, you look at like what like right-hand robotics has been able to do. Um, and, you know, certainly shout out to uh, Yarrow and Leif and the guys over at, at right-hand. Um, and it's very interesting to see their, the way that, because that's, that's ultimately what they're trying to do, right? Is have a neural network built around being able to to pick something and make a better decision the next time around when it goes to to pick that same um, object or something similar to it. Yeah, so it's taking you know there 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 are the the brute force ways of doing it where you could um, you know just try <clears throat> try to do a task of you know millions of times and document the ones that work properly and then. Uh, you know, tell the system, hey, do more of this and, and repeat the process. But it's, it, you know, I think that there's a, there's a middle ground somewhere there where the, these, these AI systems, these neural networks feed information into human driven algorithms that are programs that have been, uh, you know, a person has taught and made decisions on. So it's, it's the combination of the two that I think is where we're going to start to see those. Yeah. Yeah. First applications. Yeah. Cool. Uh, maybe you could talk about right hand a little bit. I don't know, Ryan, were you involved with right hand when they kind of got like up and running? I, I know they're a pretty big, you know, customer of access new England and, 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 uh, universal robots as well. And their technology is really matured, but were you there in the beginning when they were just get up and running? Did you put some Students. Of that, like, work in? Well, I, you know, Leif and Yarrow might, uh, you know, I, I don't remember what paperwork I might have signed back at the Harvard Biorobotics Lab. No, I'm I'm joking, but um, you know I do remember certainly some of the work that they were doing at an early stage. Uh, I took a trip up to Harvard to visit those guys and cool. uh, see some of the the work that they were doing. They had a uh, Baxter arm in their lab at the time. Uh, for those of us who RIP, that well, I guess they're not completely. Um, they do have a new. Baxter Sawyer is still around. Baxter is pretty much. Do they? Is there a Baxter still at all? I think they sold portion of it. So they sold the Baxter piece to a, a company out of China or the government of China, something out of China, and to fulfill a bunch of orders that they had had, um, they had already had the robot doing similar applications, and then um, the Sawyer arm was sold to. Um, 
Germany. I'm just drawing a blank on you know, large integrator out of Germany. Han Group. Han Group, yes. And they have continued the development, and I believe they are they they are still selling the product. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So black now. Slide, but... hmm? Yeah. Yeah. It's black now. It's no longer red. Yeah. So that's your kind of your classic example of we're going to try to pick something up a you know ten thousand times and see how it see how it, how it does and continue to tell it uh to do it more do more like the the good times and less like the bad ones so yeah. and they're there i if i remember correctly they had a patent on their manipulator which was also mm. kind of their secret sauce at the time and they mm -hmm. kind of peppered the ai on top to give it was it always ai device. or was it always at the beginning ai or was it more manipulation right at the beginning and designing the perfect end effector and then they came to ai later I believe that was the the starting point, but uh, th they would be a certainly a better. Well, we're gonna have to get them on here and ask yeah, better cool. source for that information than I would. <laughs> Ryan's playing quiet. I understand. <laughs> so, could you tell us about um, how you got started in robots? Did you do anything like first robotics or, or something like that when you're in high school, and what led you to want to pursue this career? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Certainly, it was not a a, a linear pathway for me. I, I wasn't, uh, WPI actually had the year I graduated was the first graduating class of the robotics program. So you can probably cool. figure out how old I am if you want to do all the homework uh, there. But yeah, that was the first robotics. Uh, I wasn't part of that, that class. I studied mechanical engineering, but, um, you know, I think, for me, actually, from a, a career standpoint, for a while, I had uh, I had intended to go into into teaching. Uh, I had done a lot of the program uh, in school with the the thought of of, uh, of teaching. And interestingly, cool. you know, I think part, one of the reasons why I went to work at at Axis was that I, I think one of my uh, colleagues that you both know, Nathan DeRochers recently mm. made this analogy to me that I, I think resonates, which is that being in our space, working hands-on with customers um, in, in kind of a, a sales application solving environment really is like teaching in a way, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's helping people who maybe don't understand the technology or the solution as well as we do and, and what the right you know, what a good application is for this technology versus a bad application and how are they going to be successful and let's help kind of coach them through this process. It really is kind of like teaching these manufacturers what, you know, what, what the right direction to go is. And certainly, you know, a, a, a book like Lean Robotics by Sam, you know, uh, is, is a great example of that where we're, we're helping to educate that customer through the process of how to get started in robotics and, and, and so on. So I think that's what drove me into this pathway. I was going to say the same thing when you were, before you even commented on what Nathan had brought up, I was going to say that, I mean, I think you teach people all the time. I, I certainly um, have learned a lot from you through the years. You've taught me a lot. You've taught a lot of our customers and, and a lot of the guys that have either worked with or for me, um, you have also coached. So um, you know, I see that there's a lot of teaching. Um, and so it makes sense that that was something that you had always wanted to do. And I think you, you get to fulfill that previous, um, want or, you know, future universe. Now. 
where yeah, Ryan's exactly. a professor or uh, yeah. even a high school teacher for physics or something. Who knows? But I did it though. Yeah, I, I went through the whole uh, practicum process and taught in a eighth grade high school classroom, cool. which was awesome. interesting. It smells about as good as you remember, uh, probably. <laughs> but <laughs> you know that makes a ton of sense because uh, I think that's reflected in you know what I've seen you guys put on for training, not just at Axis like sit down training, but the um, the seminars. And I'm not blowing smoke here for anybody who's listening to us. If you want to probably have one of the better like robot one day experiences, you'd go to an Axis New England seminar because uh, yeah, I have a ton of fun day. at them. Every time I go, even if I'm just sitting in the back and watching, I've never heard someone walk out of those and say that they weren't blown away. They didn't learn more than they ever thought they were going to, you know, by the time it's all done, they probably had a couple of beers. So they're smiling ear to ear, but they're well-fed, um, watered fed and, and full of knowledge. So it's- very, uh, I always say that it's, I think I've worked with 40, 40 or 45 different distributors and it's the best the best one sorry for anybody that thinks that theirs is better um but it's just uh there are some other really really good ones as well not to name any more names but uh anyone that thinks that theirs is on par they should come and just and check out the uh the half day seminar um that axis puts on hopefully they'll they'll get back to that post covid um because they are truly one of a kind and you walk away with something you walk away with knowing how to program a robot and being able to apply it, whether you're a engineer operator or plant manager, or doesn't matter uh, in, in about four hours. And that's and just saying it. it's a microcosm for the same dynamics you would have in a manufacturing floor where you have, you know, the big boss who never touches anything. You know, you got his right hand man. Who's always the guy on the sticks, like controlling everything. You get a couple other guys hanging around and, disrupting that dynamic is also a huge part of the fun at the yeah. seminars definitely it's almost like a uh, um you can treat it as like a um team team building conference yeah part yeah of the time. yeah i mean we should start uh, marketing it that way instead you know the robots are just secondary it's purely a, <clears throat> a building team building exercise that's good yeah you know certainly among among Thank you for the the kind words, but I think, you know, among the things that that I miss, um, certainly in a professional context, you know, that that have been hard during COVID, you know, certainly family and, and these kinds of things make a bigger impact probably. But if, if I'm making my list of pers- professional things that I miss the most, uh, having the ability to do, it's been uh, throughout this pandemic process, it's been being able to run these, these seminar events, which yeah. I think you know, to your point, Chris, it's just so fun to see some of these folks come in who've never touched a robot, or maybe they're like I was back in 2012, where I was a skeptic and didn't necessarily think that this was all that and how quickly I was, um, you know, how my mind was changed. But it's, it's sort of the power of the democratization of automation. That's what I feel like we're seeing in, in a nutshell, there is people being able to walk up to the tool, walk up to the robot as a tool that they, they're going to use to solve a problem. And we've tried to lay the challenges out for them and they, they learn by doing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if we, if we go back to our, if I'm going to compliment WPI on anything, it's, uh, you know, from our experiences, you, you probably have, have 
the same sense, but the, the focus on practical, yeah, project uh, hands-on project-based learning yeah, the best. is, it's super important, right? It's super important to get, especially these um, younger people who maybe haven't had some of those hands-on experiences. They've only learned physics and math in a classroom, and they haven't done a lot of stuff with their hands, getting in there, machining parts, uh, teaching a robot how to do a, a job, using programming in a real practical setting. That's kind of like what, what I relate, what we do in that environment uh, yeah. to. And so it's, it's just a lot Think of fun. Of like that versus say, filling out an equation. I saw a very good photo the other day and it was like my mathematics skills over time as an engineer, as a, de as a degreed engineer. And it was like, you know, algebra, um, pre-calc, calculus, differential equations, fluid dynamics, and then like throw, showing all the different like equations that you would have done. Um, and then it's like post-career and then it's Excel, right? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, and and, and, and I honestly, forget. I mean, like I know that there are a lot of engineers out there that do a lot more with their, you know, from an engineering standpoint than, than what we all may do. But from a practical standpoint, all the things that I did at WPI, not book worthy, but say building a respiratory monitor for a, you know, SIDS baby device or, or something like that, where I actually had to tie together all sorts of mechatronics. And um, especially from a programming side, you know, it made me get involved in so many different areas of engineering to put together this device, consult with the um, electronics, the uh, robotics, um, different professors just to help me be able to put it together. I mean, it, you, you can't, that's how the real world works when you're out in the job force of working on a team doing a project. And so most schools don't go through something like that. And I think that that is why you see a lot of people come from WPI and they're in high demand and they do well in the workforce is because they're, they're already predisposed and they've seen all those things from college. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's not to knock the academic world, which is, you know, rooted in, to your point, it's, it's driving deeper in a narrower space, typically. And I think there's a lot of incredible things that researchers and, um, you know, PhD level academics deliver to the world and to certainly to, to companies as well. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said about just getting out there and, and doing it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited because once, once a lot of the, uh, you, you know, the things start to settle down uh, as we hopefully get into the summer and, and into the fall, we are uh, working with some local schools to donate a number of robots uh, awesome. to some of those uh, lo local high schools really. And, and so I hope that we can give them a tool that they can use uh, when it comes to getting that hands-on practical experience, similar to what they're, they're actually going to experience in the real world. So, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Man. Are there, are those schools already selected? Do they know about it? Is there a, is there a, um, 
um, raffle that is going to occur <laughs> that we should be promoting here? Nothing. I think I can promote. I think we've we've got the schools all selected. Some are some are aware. Some some are partly aware. Um, yeah. You know, it's unfortunately like many things. Uh, you know, COVID came in and, and crashed our our party, our plans there. Yeah. Um, but you know, certainly when the time is right, we're going to be reaching out to those schools and uh, and we'll be sharing hopefully some of their initial experiences. Uh, and there, there are our high schools today right now that are using universal robots in their curriculum because of the fact that it's this accessible tool that, that even kids, I remember, boy, it, it brings me back quite a bit, but uh, my younger brother uh, did a, a programming. I, I think I had the robot with me one weekend and just set it up, you know, brought, brought the robot in, showed him how it worked and, and uh, he did a little programming application to take a, a cup of water and fill it off of a, a water cooler and, and just something simple like that. But how much I think he learned and inspired his career path and trajectory where he wanted to be based on even just that one experience of, wow, I can really make a robot do some really cool stuff. And I want to push that further. So hopefully we can inspire some young folks um, mm -hmm. from different backgrounds across uh, New England to, Love that. to get that first experience. It's pretty cool when you see that light in people's eyes that click where it's just like they finally get it. And you know what you were talking about at seminars earlier. I think a lot of people walk out of there with their first real understanding of like what robots actually do. You know, you were talking about it and that click is pretty awesome to see. Uh, and when they finally it clicks and they can see how they can use this thing, in different places it's something you rarely ever forget so it's, awesome yeah, it's not just for kids for your brother you know it's it's for you know the the machinist who is in his you know maybe early 60s who's been working with you know some newer you know older technology things the way that they've been done for a long time and gets behind the sticks and it's funny i remember visiting a manufacturer years ago and I'll share this analogy or the, the, the story anyway, that he, that he told, which was that when it comes to fear of new technologies, fear of, um, of automation in particular, uh, it's, it's the, what he said is that, you know, the reason why he's still doing what he's doing, he's a machinist works mm -hmm. with, with current modern day CNC machines. Uh, he watched technology come through, you know, from years ago. So it was initially all this, all this work was being done by hand. And so he had bridge ports. Yeah. Like completely nothing computer controlled. Well, even before, you know, prior to bridge ports was his experience and then started yeah. working with bridge ports and people would say, you know, we, I don't want to work with that. I want to do this stuff manually because, you know, yeah. that thing's going to, it's going to take my job. The bridge port's going to take my job. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, the reason why I'm still here today is because I, dug into the bridge port and I wanted to learn how that thing could make my job easier and elevate my job. And then when the CNC machines came around, the programmable CNCs, I learned how those work. And the guys who said, Oh, that thing's going to take my job. I don't want anything to do with that. Let's get, you know, get rid of it. Those guys found something else to do and, and no longer were in that career space. And they, they did, their jobs were lost to automation because they let them, you know, they didn't raise their game. And so he was, uh, he picked up the teach pen of the robot and, and very quickly got involved in 
programming the robot to do a job and said, I want to learn how this works because I want to once again, elevate my career and automation proof myself because I'm going to know how the technology that everybody else is afraid is going to steal their jobs. I want to be figuring out how to make that thing work uh, and, and do my job better than I could do it today. So it's a certainly a forward guy at a seminar as well. Say again. Was that guy at a seminar as well? Uh, I, they, he might've come at one point, customer? but yeah, I know that this was, you know, we were doing a, a, a task on site right in front of their machine. Uh, and so oh, yeah. programming, cool. yeah, real live application that they had. If you had to say something to people who don't see as nearly as many customers as you get to see, and I think it's pretty unique, as you were saying earlier, part of the role of the distributors to be that connector between the equipment manufacturers and the manufacturers out in the field who are using the equipment. So if you had to like kind of reiterate one thing to those people, uh, whether it's, you know, you are R and D or some other company, maybe it's a startup. They haven't really gotten out and seen that many customers yet. What would you tell them about the way that real customers think? Hmm. I, I, I guess in general, I would just emphasize that user experience is, is kind of everything at a point when it comes to particularly getting someone's buy-in uh, that this technology is worth working with, worth investing in, worth learning deeper. And so it's kind of that first 15-minute, 30-minute hook mm. of, do you believe that mm. this is going to work or are you... Did you get stuck on something? Are you, is something not working the way that you expected it to work? Mm. Is it not naturally intuitive? And so I, I would encourage, certainly you are in all, uh, you know, all automation manufacturers to think about that. Think about who is, who's deploying your products today and who might be doing it tomorrow? Because to the point of democratizing automation, I think, you know, the entry points are getting lower. People are seeing the need to automate and not every company can afford to have, you know, multiple automation engineers on staff. They might not have any engineers on staff, Yeah, but that doesn't change their need to automate. And so, uh, you know, the more accessible we make these things, not simpler, just more accessible. And I think mm. that UR has done a pretty good job of figuring out how to crack that nut in terms of making things powerful yet still uh, accessible to people. Yeah. Now, now um, flip that question around from a manufacturer standpoint, not you are sorry, from a local manufacturer that you would sell to, what advice would you give them when looking at automation and robotics with all of the knowledge that you have, considering the fact that you guys have deployed over a thousand robots, about a thousand URs are almost there. It's, it's going to be an awesome celebration. Um, I'm invited. And uh, there's obviously a lot of skill that you have from seeing 
probably 500 plus or thousand plus manufacturing floors from just a robotic automation standpoint, what is your advice to a customer that is never automated before? That's a good question. Yeah, I think it is a good question. And I think that the, the, the classic mistake that I think I see time and time again, <clears throat> and I'll compare that to the, the folks who don't uh, capitalize on the opportunity versus the people who really take the ball and run with it. I think the thing that, that differentiates them, excuse me, is the, the difference between looking at starting with something like a, a UR automation that they can do themselves, flexible automation, uh, looking at that like a traditional capital expenditure, looking at that like buying a piece of machinery that's going to do a very specific task. Mm -hmm. It's not that black and white in terms of the return on investment. The, mm -hmm. the companies that have the greatest success are the ones who say, yeah, yeah, we're going to calculate how, how much this is going to pay us back for this particular application. But we're also going to value even greater that what we're going to learn, what our people are going to learn, what eye-opening experiences we're going to have by, by bringing this in and trying this out mm -hmm. for ourselves. And I think we can all relate to that experience of buying something new that's supposed to do something for us. Um, and then once you're a, a little ways in, you've, you've got a much better understanding of that technology, that hobby, that, you know, car, whatever, whatever thing that you're delving into it, once you've spent time with it, you, you, you know, now what you didn't know before, and you can't know, um, you, you can't try to cross off all those unknowns on the front end. Yeah. So those who, I don't want to say that they throw caution to the wind, but they certainly value the learning experience and the opportunity to kind of raise the bar for themselves because they see what's coming and automation is not a trend. It's not something that is going to slow down. I think that when we look at global competitiveness, hmm. um, it's, it's an integral piece to these companies. It, it, it's to. not, not a question of whether automation is happening in your industry. Automation is happening. It's a question of, are you among the early adopters somewhere in the middle, or are you going to be maybe- Are you going to be left behind? Yeah, either left behind or trying to play catch up. And being playing catch up is not the position you want to be in because those folks who started at the beginning have learned, to my point before, so much that they could never have known until they did it for themselves. And so, you know, I think those folks who- and many of them have chosen to automate since then. But I think of how, if I look at a manufacturer four years ago uh, or five years ago, we actually had a, a customer recently deploy their first robot who we, I think five or six years ago, looked at the first application together. And the longest long sales cycle. cycle. <laughs> Jinx. Record. <laughs> and, and so, yeah. but I just think of where could they have been if they had pulled the trigger five years ago instead of waiting five years, they could, they could have a half dozen or a dozen robots automating applications, or 
maybe other automation technology that they yeah. kind of they learned better, yeah. right? Yeah. It's in part, you're communicating to your customers, your employees, uh, your, uh, your management, you know, that, that this is, you are forward thinking here and you're trying to, to, to solve the problems, hopefully not just of today, but also of the future by uh, investing in this, this knowledge that you're going to have. So that's to me is the real, the LOI. I remember that from the early Roboteek pitch deck. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the learning on investment often needs to be heavily considered to be more important than an ROI. It's definitely Not to say ROI doesn't exist or shouldn't be considered because it should, but the the LOI, you know, you kind of have to look five years out and where do you want to be as a company on that specific floor and then work backwards and go, well, if we limit everything by ROI, we might not ever, we might not even be around in five years. And the first ROI is usually the worst. Let's be honest. I've never, I mean, it's it's rare that the other second, third, fourth, and fifth ones end up being worse. Um, The first one's always the hardest. So, but interestingly, I feel like the, the cases where people are, going for that highest ROI application or are kind of doing the ROI calculation to death. Those are the ones that we see the least successful because they've picked the wrong application. <clears throat> they've picked what's going to maybe be the the greatest bang for their buck if they get it perfect. But this goes back to, you can't know what you don't know today. Um, you're going to find that out on the pathway there. And so if, if part of the goal is to do it yourself. You got to calculate that into where you start as well. So I really mm-hmm. think that's the biggest, it's, that's the secret it's pain, sauce is it's like pain point versus the return on investment versus the ease of being able to do it. And I think that like sometimes people, those people simplify those to two things. I, I, but I, I do think that there are, there really is, there really is three. It's like, what is the ROI high, you know, or is the ROI low versus is the, you know, pain going to be super high or low? And, and then, you know, how, how easy is it truly to get this done? And when you look at like a, an LOI, I mean, so many applications that we go through that you would learn to be able to do those harder applications that might even have a higher ROI a better, excuse me, ROI if, if you had learned first um, versus trying to tackle it. And then some people will bite it off. They'll take on the hardest one that they perceive on paper as the best payback period, but it is super hard and it was their biggest pain point. And then they never, they, they go, well, that was horrible. I had a horrible experience. And it was like, well, you just, you, instead of trying to and listen, play play the game at the beginner level you know you decided to go on to play against the computer at the extremely difficult you know the hardest level and yeah like i wouldn't want to play that video game anymore either if it if i came in and just got destroyed ryan do you remember at that customer that you were talking about that it was five years from when you first went in to when uh, they finally bought their first robot. You remember what like had changed? Was there a changeover, like an upper management? 
they or did they have some new engineer that was willing to pick it up or like was that what was the what was different about it you know yeah you know i think from <clears throat> from what i remember i think you know some management uh opinions had changed i think that the thing that i've seen the the biggest shift in the last five years or so has been a an aware just an awareness of the pressure of automation the need to get on board um i think that that uh owners managers operations folks are are understanding the just where things are going but they're also becoming more aware of these technologies that are out there to them that you know like cobots which you know like i said six seven years ago wasn't a term we even used so i think that we're starting to see the maturation of some of those flexible automation tools that are getting into the spheres and just enough enough times you see other people automating uh maybe a competitor or a you know, a friend of yours who, who's mm-hmm. uh, at a different manufacturing facility. So that kind of a scenario where just, I think, awareness of the, the urgency of it finally kind of caught mm-hmm. up. And, and so they, they made that investment. But um, that I, I was if I had to maybe guess what you're going to say, I would have said that there was some change in management mentality or change over in management, because I've seen often where there's a uh, engineer who sees the who has the foresight and sees the benefits of the technology and then they have to go to management and management says, give me the ROI. Yeah. And that's exactly where it usually starts to die. You know, Um, I think the, the only other thing I'll just add before we switch topics is, uh, and I guess another shout out to Sam, boy, I feel like we're just, Pitching lean robotics really hard on this. Uh, well, we, we talk about lean people robotics who don't know lean robotics podcast. don't know what we're talking about it though. So I think we're okay. Yeah, there you go. So this this concept of the minimum viable robotic cell. I don't know if that's exactly the term, but it's it's don't aim for the moon. Don't put your wish list too high. And actually, uh, one of our uh, successful customers had shared this at at last year's or well. Boy, it was two years ago now, Robotique Conference, this idea of let's, you know, if I could do it again, if I could, if I could deploy my first robot again, I would aim in the middle to, you know, medium low on, on difficulty as opposed to on high in term, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make my wish list of what this robot could do so big. I would get to the finish uh, faster. And it kind of goes back to, you know, I, I'm, I'm, Last weekend, I'm out here working on my my hundred year old uh, New England home, and it, you know sometimes the mentality that I have to have is better, not best, right? So let's yeah. shoot for making this better. Let's not try to hit perfection because uh, perfection, you know, it's 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 that exponential growth curve in terms of how much more challenging it is to get that last ninety percent uh, or last ten percent done versus that first ninety percent. So yeah, if the, yeah. if the windows are a little crooked, you live with it and you, you, you <laughs> make it work around it. You don't rip everything out and start. Uh, Never going to be plumb square and flush all at the exactly. same time. Yeah. So it's, I, I kind of look at that analogy in the automation, you know, in manufacturing really is let's, let's get it doing something. Let's get the robot, let's get a robot in, let's get it returning, you know, some value to you. 
and you're going to learn by doing that. Let's not, you know, try to over plan on the front end. I think yeah. it has made the collaborative robot market and, and the UR market successful was that minimum viable mindset. Maybe it was from a price tag standpoint or just from an ease of entry versus a full turnkey, all the bells and whistles industrial system that has net isn't going to fail. It's going to have a hundred percent uptime and you know, you're never going to have to touch it again for the next three years, obviously costs a lot more. And I think that that it takes the other aspect is it just takes a lot longer to design and you're locked in, you're, you're locked in. There's no doubt about it. Like you're not moving, you're not switching things around. It's not flexible. And so I think that that is an area, the minimum viable product, uh, robot system that the lean robotics book defines and Sam really talks about quite a bit. It, it's super important to the success so far and to the success in the future. Now I have a, a question around that for you. When you look back five years or eight years um, let's go five years Look back five years, there was a lot of success in say even like 2016, 2017 um, after a few years of having the product. Where do you see now, like what do you see now versus then that is drastically different from a customer standpoint? Hmm. Well, I think the most obvious thing to me is that we're we're getting to a a place where i think if if i made a list of what manufacturers were most likely to jump into the pool early or automate with robots and least likely to automate with robots whether it was because of the industry they're in or the type of application that they were looking to solve I think we're now starting to to see many more of those folks at the the lower end, the last to jump in the pool on my list that are really starting to look hard at using robots. And I think it's mm. there's two things. One is that it's just the you know the typical adoption curve in terms of how we're we're starting to get more and more people who majority. have used this these robots, and so people are seeing it places. It's becoming more well understood. But we're also seeing in the, you know, in the the UR plus ecosystem. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's kind of this plug and play world of products that work with universal robots. And so Chris that world has grown dramatically. Uh, a little plug for Chris there. Um, sorry for don't Just mean to do your our job website if you all want to go check it out. It's looking pretty good. Yes. So, so I think that, you know, we're seeing things like sanding tools and screw driving kits and yeah. palletizers and <clears throat> all of which you, you could do before deburring solutions, things that I'm not even naming. Sure. And those are the kind of, I would call them process intensive applications mm -hmm. where we would, we wouldn't touch those with a 10 foot pole five years ago because <laughs> they were, those were, that was the ROI gold standard. We were going to get great yeah. payback if we could do it. On my training chart, it was always like the top of the area, like the, Don't maybe you try it. it five after you've deployed five. Yeah. 
really juicy. And I think for management, those, those applications always looked really great, but when push came to shove, our customers weren't capable of doing that themselves. And so that's cool. We're now at this inflection point, I think where awareness has grown for the kind of industries that, uh, you know, like the food and bev industry folks who are in baked goods, for example, who, never automated something themselves before they only maybe have just bought machinery that's going to work those people are now saying well if i buy this robot with this palletizing solution it's kind of the whole thing's there i've got the whole thing ready to go or maybe someone who is sanding countertops um for you know a specialty industry or grinding some material um for, for, for a surface, a certain surface finish requirement, whatever. Yeah. Those people didn't have a tool that they could, that we could easily hand them and say, yes, you can do this yourself. Um, and, and now we have, we have that. And those people are now way more aware of what robotics can do for them. So yeah, that's the big change in my mind is the, that's cool. I appreciate it's all the that. things that yeah. go around the robot that enhance yeah. the capabilities. It was definitely, uh, I haven't thought about it like that, but I think you're hundred percent correct. One plug for just a really cool anecdote. I think out of that is I love the, um, we have a couple cleaning, uh, devices on UR plus, and it's just something a lot of people would never think of, but it happens a lot. You need to take the fingerprints off a part before you ship it to, a uh, a, you know, a, one of your, the supplier has to take the fingerprints off like a machine piece or something like that. And they have a person there standing there with like a CO2 gun or a plasma gun, just going over it all day. We have a couple of those options on UR plus now. So I always think that's a cool one. Even if it's get to see that one in the application category on the POS reports, but I'm excited to see it when I, uh, I (laughs) yeah, exactly. I I think, well, some of these, this is, this is the way it goes, right? I think some of these things are going to flourish in ways that nobody expected. Even the people who maybe designed the tool and others are going to, maybe not be as successful, but that's, that's kind of the reality of these ecosystems, but it's, it's unique. And I think it's oftentimes undervalued by a customer who's looking at what they think is an apples to apples comparison in terms of robot arms. Let's be honest, look very similar across different manufacturers, different colors. They've got different shapes, but ultimately they look like they're the same kind of thing. And it's, I think that that in itself is an oversimplification, the software tools and all of these things are really important. Oh, yeah. But even if we don't look at anything else um, and we treat everything else as an apples to apples comparison, having the ability to have a solution that's, that's built for what you're trying to do that has that plug and play capability. That is just such a transformative thing for a man- manufacturer who doesn't have that experience, who wants to do it for themselves. And that's why I wouldn't recommend a lot of those applications in the past because people would just trip up on them. And today they can be successful by themselves, which is pretty impressive. It seems it really does seem like that's where things have headed in the past, probably 12 to 18 months, you know, making everything um, application specific, not necessarily like products, but like, you could call them a kit, but, you know, trying to get close to a solution without it being customized for 
each application, each specific application. And so I think it's really interesting to see all the applications that you've brought up, you toss in welding and you've got all these application kits out there now that someone can take and it might not solve their exact problem because they might have to tweak it a little bit, but it will get them a lot further than just a robot and some programming got yeah. them really five years ago is those did not, those were not around. So. Right. I have to say you're an absolute trooper for taking that sunshine right in the eyeballs and not right even in the blanking. face, right? <laughs> Got a, just a little window that I'm looking through here. Yeah. I do have to say there's work to be done on those app kits though. I mean, and in general with the whole solution oriented, I think customers still need to see more of it. You know, there's a certain level, just kind of like you go through any adoption curve, you know, early adopters are still are jumping in on it, but you know, to get the majority and they, they just need more and more and more and more all the time. So um, that's where a lot of the work, the legwork is still like yet to be done. Well, it has to work. I mean, if it does, if it's not easily modified to fit the application after you get the kit and there's a problem there too, right? It has to be able to be adjustable enough to fulfill the customized need for the part being a little bit thinner or, bigger or different shape than yeah. what was the initial design. So it is, it is really interesting. Um, but on top of that, Ryan, I'm curious outside of say, you know, obviously collaborative robots have really dominated our lives the past five years as an emerging technology more than five years for you, where, what new technology do you see out there? It may relate to collaborative robots might be something outside of that, but it, on the manufacturing floor, what new technology do you see changing manufacturing lives here in the next three to five years? Hmm. I think there's, there's a number of them. Uh, I, I think I hate to go back to, the, the AI topic, but that certainly is one of them that, mm -hmm. that I see that we, we've barely scratched the surface of, particularly when it comes to inspection and, and uh, delivering knowledge of, um, or, or maybe even I would say <clears throat> coming close to the kind of uh, analysis that a person can do, the subjective determination of whether something uh, is an apple or an orange, you know, systems can do that really well today in the way that a person can do that we couldn't do in a reliable manufacturing environment five years ago. And so that's, that to me is we're just barely scratching the surface of the use of AI, not, a, not only in those machine vision applications, but in, in those programming applications as well. Yeah. I, I think that Mobile robots is a is another one that I have to go to because it's it, it's a technology that predated in some ways uh, collaborative robots in, in its yeah. iteration and yet has I, I think we haven't seen the rabid adoption by customers in the same way because we've we've got the, we've got a similar problem which is the the platform itself is is really capable for a lot of these autonomous mobile robots. Uh, but 
the what goes on top of those is the equivalent of your application kit. And so there there's definitely it, we're, we're not at a parallel level in terms of the ecosystem that surrounds these mobile robots and, and enhances their capabilities and makes them more specific to the application that the customer could use um, that makes the customer say, yeah, this is a no brainer. Let's yeah. just let's get one of these and see what it can do for us. But in part, that's that's I think also due to where the technology returns value for you. They, they return value in a, a fleet kind of an environment where you've got lots of these mobile robots doing a task, whereas you know a, a collaborative robot, you could have one robot that's yeah. doing an automated job and returning some real you solve it with one versus in a lot of cases you need to have a full mm -hmm. fleet to get that investment like payback potentially but the the change in in feel on the floor now are you uh are you saying like companies such as like row eq that there there's only a few ecosystem like companies that really build to fulfill need within that amr space right now yeah and i still think that there's there's a lot more invention and innovation and and kind of outside the box thinking that can go in there i think there there are folks like roec and roeq whatever uh yeah, however you want to say it um and and all these different uh, kind of top module providers but they're not necessarily they're thinking about how to attach carts and conveyors and things like that but they're not reinventing what you can do with a mobile robot. We've started to yeah. see some of that with some some top modules that can do things like disinfection uh, via mm. UV, which uh, actually, you know, I, I don't know that it's an autonomous mobile robot, but I know Fenway Park had made some yeah. investments in a few uh, of these kind of UV towers mm. that they, they, I think they're moving them around manually, but we're seeing the same thing being done in in environments. And it's not just... I don't, I don't think the applications are just COVID related. And so when, you know, COVID is more or less behind us, those applications will go away. I think there's a lot of cases where area disinfection is necessary in a lab environment, things like that. And so can that open up new doors for things like mobile robots to do a specific task? But that's, that's the kind of innovation that I think we need to see more of, which is let's, let's put something on this mobile uh, robot that's going to make it be able to do a real specific function that that mm -hmm. someone can envision it doing for them hmm. uh, yeah it's an interesting problem if you look at it there's so many mobile robots out there cobots were a little different because you are was kind of one of the only names in the game for a while at least and the ecosystem had a chance to grow around a single platform being you are you know it's mm -hmm. almost the exact opposite nowadays with mobile robots there's so many available you know and a provider of those would have to try and accommodate for a lot of different to be able to represent a big part of the market so it's a interesting problem not easy one to solve for sure yeah and i think that part of the the future is is the convergence of some of these things i think it's you know i think we've seen more and more customers using uh, mobile manipulate manipulators, mobile manipulators, or mobots, or whatever you want to call them, uh, where you've That's got a new these. One. I haven't heard that one before. Mobots. Yeah, yeah, where you've got a mobile mobile platform and a and a collaborative robot mm -hmm. on top, and uh, 
you know, I think, as I said before, I think sensing is, uh, to, to your point, I think Chris, you made this point or, or Zach, I forget which, which of you said that, uh, you know, that AI uh, can, can do these things today, but they don't have enough data. There's not enough yeah. information being provided. And so the proliferation of sensing into the devices themselves for things like preventative maintenance, for things like, um, you know, intelligent, uh, predictive uh, maintenance, I I mean, as well. So preventative and predictive maintenance, Uh, but also for sensing maybe inconsistencies with the process. If you, the more sensors that you have, the more that you can take that data and process it and figure out what the root, what, what really is going on around you. Kind of like a, you know, as a, as a human, we have intuition about what's going on around us. And that often is because, at a certain frequency, we're picking up a sound or out of the periphery of our vision, we've caught something that our, our brain hasn't, our conscious brain hasn't processed, but our, our subconscious brain has processed that information. Mm -hmm. And so if we can do that same kind of things, thing with, with robotics, I think that, you know, manufacturers, certainly things like downtime and quality defects and um, keeping these things up and running. And, and I think I'm, I'm going on a bit of a, 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 uh, weaving path. So if you'll stick with me for a second, like it. the other thing that will make robotic applications more flexible is that ability to perceive the environment better, to be adaptable to changes is the part where you expected it to be. Well, if you can correct for that without a lot of human intervention or human special programming, now the robot is dramatically more valuable uh, because it's going to keep running. It doesn't have to be a perfect environment for it definitely that's an interesting very interesting um commentary around what it what it will have to look like um ryan do you have any questions for us yeah i you, you know i th- it's okay if you just don't like <laughs> toss it out there as a uh well like, i'm curious to know what either of you think is is the future um here because it's something i think about quite a quite a lot in terms of what is what are these next areas for opportunity in in manufacturing in up and coming technologies um anything that either of you are seeing that's maybe just outside of the cobot world that i'll go first go ahead uh i if i was talking to aunt betty once again i would just talk about this you know this is such a mature piece of technology there's so much sensing, so much connectivity, so much data involved in it. It's so polished. And I feel like all of industrial automation is just living 20 years behind sometimes at least, mm. you know, and well, this is 2021 and to most people, yeah. they're used to this level of technology. And if we had this level of technology in our factories working for us every day, I think it would be a much different world and all of manufacturing would be much different. So there's a lot that goes into that. I don't know how Apple designed that product to be at the level that it's at in the entire industry. It pulled along uh, with it, but you know, if we can get more of the B2B industrial automation, uh, you know, old school way of thinking, if we can bring that into the modern way and start to think of manufacturers and businesses that we sell to more as consumers, direct consumers, I think that's, you know, kind of the next big thing my hot take yeah and i i completely agree i think it 
goes back to that user experience piece, right? It's the, um, who can't pick up a iPhone and at least get dangerously far along in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, using it and it becomes intuitive, you know, that that's how it's designed. And so a three-year-old can, yeah, it's, it just comes naturally, you know, everyone from your, your, your three-year-old to a 93-year-old can, can pick it up and, and FaceTime with their grand or great grandchildren. You know, it's, it's, it is universally uh, uh, intuitive. And that's, I think you are has taken a good leap in that direction, but to your point, there still is a, there's a big jump still to go to get to that level of use. Zach? Um, I think a couple of things. I'd say connectivity is really important for the future. When, when I look at say like what higher robotics is able to do and they know, I think Rob on the podcast said he knows that his customer is down before his customer knows that they're down. And I know that there are some hesitations of, well, some manufacturers allow for them to be connected to the internet, you know, but obviously it's possible. And if we can get past that hurdle, I really believe that everything being connected at the end of the day and being able to be seen from anywhere in the world with the proper security measures, of course, only enhances what we can do from a manufacturing standpoint. I think there's probably a hundred different ideas or companies that could be, you know, within what I'm saying there. But I, I think that that really allows for a lot. And a good example of that is, um, even from a teleoperation standpoint, if you're working in another country or across the globe, being able to work on the floor and being able to connect an expert in, let's say you're really great at understanding powdered metal. And there's only a few sections of the globe that are really um, well, or well-versed in, in powdered metal. I mean, it's just not that, it's not that common, it's not that prevalent. And being able to connect somebody that is an expert in powdered metal operations and something specific about a machine there or a robot or whatever to somebody in another part of the globe that is having a similar or having a problem that is specific to that, you can connect people a lot faster if they were to at least see what's going on. I'm not saying I think that the whole teleoperations of being able to actually manipulate something on site is really cool and could be dynamic, but just being able to see what's going on and provide advice and, and that connection could be very powerful. And then on top of that, I can only think of being able to support customers easier from my standpoint today, if something happens to be able to talk with them virtually and not have to necessarily fly there, not because we don't want to, but obviously it, t- it takes a long time often to just get somebody right there and you could be on in minutes when there's a challenge if if it was fully um, communicated, uh, uh, connected, so. Yeah, and Zach, those problems are ubiquitous across almost every type of device in the industry. Like it's not just limited to robots even. I mean, you see- Yeah, that exactly, yeah, that's that That was definitely like a part of, that's why I was kind of like, there's like a hundred different needs. It's not really just robotics, it's, it's kind of everything. I mean, all the machines on the floor, they're not connected really either. Some of them might be connected on the intranet right now, but for the most part, most companies are not running 
with full connection to, you know, the internet. <clears throat> so even then, yeah, there's a big, there's a big lag in terms of getting legacy equipment, getting data out of these, these things, getting sensors into them so that they can understand what's going on with their machinery. Yeah. Um, and so they can part use of that what data. Humans do, you know, humans on the manufacturing floor communicate with each other and they communicate about the machines that they're working with as well. And yeah. if, uh, you know, there's going to be less humans on the manufacturing floor because more automation than you need the machines to talk to themselves. More. Yeah. yeah. I have one other question. Yeah. If you sure. want to go for it. Um, yeah. And it's, I'll, I'll pose it to either of you, but if, if from your professional experience, um, you know, in, in terms of the career path that you chose, the, yeah. the, the things, the problems you've had to solve, if you could create a new course on a university curriculum that you could have taken that you think would have better informed you or, or could inform the next generation, either going down your career path or, or an area that you think that there's opportunities for, what, what, would, you, uh, what would you put to that curriculum? What, what course? Zach, you want to take this? Or I have an answer, but if, if you have one, I'll let you go. I think um, you're trying to pass it off, so I don't have any time to think here. Okay, I, I'll, I'll take a stab at it in two-part answer. So the most important and formulative class I took was probably like the last term of senior year. I had taken programming classes up to that point, but I took an intro to Python course. And I think for the work that I've done as an engineer in my career, and also the work I, I do now as a businessman or you know, like in management, whatever, a rote basic understanding of like the very basic principles of programming has helped immensely. And it, it was a travesty that I had to wait till my senior year on an elective course to maybe get that exposure, you know? And there's too many people that never had that. Actually, I met my girlfriend of seven years in that course too. So that helped out as well. Um, but uh, the other thing is, I think that there much getting back to the same theory and practice thing that WPI always talks about. As far as robotics goes, um, there's not a lot of practice and there's a lot of theory. And I think a lot of the robotics study out there is around how to build robots, how to tune a PID loop, how to understand kinematics, things like that. But the real practical side of robots, you don't need as many theorists. You need more like developers or, or like implementers of robots. So I kind of think of it as the way that computer science has gone, where computer science in the beginning was very much a science, but now the majority of people you see writing code are developers and their job is to develop mobile apps or something like that. If we can bring the curriculum around robotics, like obviously still having that base in theory, but if we can bring it to the more mainstream, the way that we have 10,000 mobile developers within 20 miles of Boston for iOS applications, if we can do the same thing for robotics, then robots will really start to become as ubiquitous as they should be. Hmm. So that's what I think, um, at least for the curriculum. Good. Yeah, I think that's that's really that's a really interesting thing from a robotics standpoint, Chris, that I think is very valuable. It's almost an applied versus theoretical, you know. Yeah. Definitely. Great question. Um so I would go down the, if we're talking about business and sales, um, 
it also has a lot to do with engineering and understanding the technical capabilities. And I think that there is this massive market of business plus sales plus marketing and then engineering and understanding technical capabilities that I think that there's very few, if any, universities that will you know teach a course kind of combining it because I, I think that there are a lot of business people that can be very successful but i think within within robotics to be very successful i think you have to have both of it and i think that you don't you need to have this area of understanding how the engineering works to look at an application and provide a solution, especially from an automation solution standpoint. And then when you add in like industrial engineering on the manufacturing floor, I mean, it's just, it's virtually impossible to become an automation engineer in a university today. So I think that a lot of that has to do with, and it might be only dated to a certain sliver of time based on like what technology is, is actually out on the field and being used in the manufacturing and where to, essentially bridge the gaps. In a lot of cases, like we bridge the gaps from what the machine is doing and what the manual piece is doing now. I mean, we're often plugged a plug-in, right? Uh, after the fact to solve a specific solution. So, you know, maybe in 20 years, it'll look a lot different and you'll see lines of a hundred collaborative robots. And that might be a different mindset than saying, here's machine, here's some manual pieces and we're going to put this robot in between it. So for me, it's, it would be a program probably out of the industrial engineering area, looking at um, like lean um, manufacturing and tying in some of the things that like Sam Bouchard pulls in from a lean robotics standpoint and adding in automation. And then, you know, adding in the, the business mindset, which you can look at from a sales side, but you also have to look at from like a lean robotics, if you read, you know, when you read that yeah. book and talking about justification. And so, I mean, if I could build a curriculum, I mean, I'm, I'm coming to this answer after probably 120 seconds of talking, but I'd probably just build one around lean robotics. <laughs> there you go. Come into your local robotics program, sign on up. Sponsored by Ryan Weaver. Both, both, you? both, both good answers. Both good answers. <laughs> I think you should start a podcast, Ryan. Oh, I don't know. I, I think <laughs> well, this uh, this after, so. Here's here's the other thing because I really wanted to get into like marketing and some other really interesting things, um, which are different. You know, they might not necessarily lend itself to an end customer as much, but there are some really cool things that you do from how many different hats that you wear. So, I mean, this as we'd have to get you on as a regular um, because there's so many other questions that I have here that I, yeah. I want to ask, I, we're, we're definitely running pretty long here now, so we should probably end it, but I think we should save some of the business side and, and marketing standpoint, and even like training and, and getting into how to deploy your first robot and the different steps you should take. I think that that could be very interesting um, next time around. Yeah, for sure. That This has been a Part great two. time. So just say the word I'll be, uh, cool. Sounds good. I'll be back. Thanks, Ryan. I like that. We're definitely going to have to have a part two. Sounds good, like a plan. Great. Well, thank you for uh, thanks for spending the time with us today. We, we really do appreciate it.
And uh, we hope that our listeners um, really, uh, really love it as much as we do and that they reach out to you and, and inundate you with so many uh, questions, questions that uh, opportunities you can't. And I'll be out. looking for the invite for the thousandth robot party. There you go. Thousandth yeah. Robot coming to you 2021. Well, that's what we're here for. So certainly if anybody has uh, an automation challenge they need to solve, yes. accessany.com. That's where you should go. We'll uh, certainly if you're in the six New England states or uh, or even beyond these days. So cool. let us know. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Great. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks.